Before uh, Andrew Jackson became the seventh president of the United States, he served as a major general in the Tennessee militia. And during the War of 1812, his troops had reached an all-time low in morale, and as a result, they began arguing, arguing with each other, bickering and fighting. And uh, he called them all together at one point, and he was so disgusted and frustrated with what was taking place in their midst that he finally got them all together, and he said, Listen, let's remember that the enemy is over there. You know, sometimes we have to kind of get together and remind ourselves that the enemy, folks, is not in here, but the enemy is out there. You know, and what, what a good admonition that would be for the church today, don't you think? You know, sometimes you wonder what Jesus thinks as he looks down and he, he sees all the infighting and all the stuff that's taken place in the church. You know, it would almost be like a good time to call a timeout, whether it's a 20-second or full timeout, I'm not sure, but at least a timeout long enough to be able to say, listen... You know, the enemy is out there. And don't forget that. And as Christians, let's pull together. Let's encourage each other. One of the purposes of meeting together is don't forget that the purpose of meeting together as believers is that we would encourage each other and all the more until we see the day drawing near that Jesus will come again. So that encouragement of encouraging each other, to pray for each other, to support each other, to be united in spirit and purpose. You know, and uh, I think that it's time that maybe we just remind ourselves that the enemy is not in here, but the enemy is over there. I like one of the most profound comments made regarding the early church came from the lips of a gentleman by the name of Aristides. He was sent by the emperor Hadrian to spy out these strange people who were calling themselves Christians. And he came back after seeing them in action. He had a mixed report, but his immortal words to the emperor have gone down throughout history. And I want you to listen carefully to what his observation was as he went out to, to spy on these strange people. He said this, Behold how they love one another. He goes, they love one another. He says, they never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. Behold how they love one another. Now, I've often thought, wouldn't it be fascinating if Aristides was sent on the same mission today? What would his observation be? Behold how they criticize one another. Behold how they judge one another. Behold how their attitudes are so critical and condemning of one another. I don't know if it'd come back with the same, behold how they love one another. And you have to wonder, as we consider all these things, you know, we've really become, a, this generation has become, and, and almost taking it to new heights as far as what it means to be brother bashing and sister smashing. And uh, we need to recognize that, you know, the enemy is over there and the enemy is not in here, but I think Aristides would go back with a report that's a lot different than it was originally of behold how they love one another. You know, the mark of the Christians should be a, one of a spirit of unity. One, it should be one of a spirit of genuine love for others. And uh, the church very rarely demonstrates that today. And if you don't think that's true, I want to ask you to go into a Christian bookstore sometime and look at the titles of the books that are on the shelves. And I want you to tell me whether those titles echo what I'm talking about as far as a genuine spirit of love and unity for one another. Or is it one of polarization and one of 
critical spirit and one of uh, judgmentalism, so to speak. And if that's not enough, all you've got to do is just stop here in a local church. And if you're listening to us on tape and you're involved in another church, just stop and make some observations for a second about the local church that you're involved with. Ask yourself questions about this local church, if this is the one that you call home. When you walk among those of us who are here, do you walk away with a genuine sense of love and unity and concern and encouragement for one another? Or do you pick up on how critical and negative and judgmental and condemning we have become? I've never been one to beat around the bush. (laughs) And I don't think I'm going to start today. But I'll tell you, one of the things that always attracted me to the people that were in this group called Kindred Fellowship was that I always believed that when anyone would come, any stranger would come, and happen to walk through these doors and meet the people that are here, that they walked away with a genuine sense that these people love each other, they're concerned about each other, they encourage one another, and you know what? I feel welcome here. I would hope that we never lose that. I would hope that that is always something that would set us apart from every other group and anybody else that is here on this campus. And and I want to encourage you to remember that, you know what, that's the roots. But it's easy sometimes to lose our first love. As Jesus warned in the book of Revelation, the church at Laodicea, sometimes you know, we can lose our first love, not just for the Lord, but also for one another. And we need to recognize and understand how important that is. So to underscore the importance of this quality of, of unity, I want you to take your Bibles for a moment and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. Because frankly, I, I'm going to admit in public that I'm quite saddened by some of the politicking that takes place. I'm quite saddened by some of the critical spirit and the negative attitudes that I have been confronted with. And I would hope that maybe we can all learn something from this and take a good hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves the question, you know what, am I a person who is critical of others? Am I a person who encourages unity or do I encourage disharmony and disunity? You know, where do I fit in this whole equation? And in John chapter 13, it's interesting as we look at this whole backdrop of the spirit of unity and of serving one another. But, you know, Jesus has something to say about this as we look at John 13. Look at verse 1 through 15. We read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It says, And during the supper, the devil already, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back, he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Now, if you recall in our last meeting together, it says that we are to gird ourselves or prepare ourselves for action. The same word that's being used here is that Jesus got up and he girded himself or he put on somewhat of an apron and he prepared himself for action and the action was about to follow. Now, as we go through this, we see that he rose, he girded himself, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And when he came to Simon, Peter said, Simon said to him, or Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not at my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, Hey, you know what? Not all of you are clean. So when he had taken, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, You know what I have done to you. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord, the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, I want you to understand what's taking place here because it's significant in what we're going to study as it introduces our topic for today. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is this. In the area that they lived in, the, the geography, the climate was much like Southern California. It was arid. It was a desert. It was a dry uh, portion of the world. And uh, as a result, you know, it was dusty. It was dirty. And to make matters worse, they didn't have clothed shoes. They had all open sandals. And so one of the cultural traditions as you walked into another person's house is you would come into the house and you'd have some nasty-looking feet. And so they would have a basin or a wash basin by the front door, and whoever the host or hostess was would have somebody assigned there to make sure as a guest would enter, they would go ahead and wash the feet. Now, another interesting little thing is this. They didn't have tables and chairs. So they're sitting down, and, and uh, if you've ever seen pictures of the Last Supper, you see them sitting down, kind of leaning to the left, which would confuse some of you because I'm going to be leaning one way or the other, and you won't be able to figure it out. But just figure it in your mind. I'm leaning to the left. And so they would be kind of, of laying on the ground. Now, think about this for a second. Now, if you're leaning this way, that means somebody else is over here leaning this way too. So you're getting a good look at some ugly feet. And that's why they probably didn't eat a whole bunch back then either. And everyone's skinny. But the point is this. So they're all sitting there and they're leaning and they got some dirty feet that they're looking at. Now, this is a guy thing, ladies, and I want you to understand what we're dealing with here. Jesus gets himself up and he starts and goes and prepares himself to do something. Now, all the guys, as guys typically do, are just sitting around going, what's he doing? What's he doing? What is he doing? And then he starts to go around and wash every one of their feet. Now, not once did any of these guys make an effort as they saw Jesus get up. Does the Bible record that any of them ever said, what, what are you doing? They were probably watching the game or something, and, you know, I don't know what they were doing. And they weren't paying attention. But what are you doing? They never asked, what are you doing? They never asked, can I help you? They never asked, oh, they never said, oh, you're doing, oh, you're going to wash our feet. Well, no, that's fine. We'll go ahead and do that. See, they never asked any of that. And Jesus, as he was going around washing their feet, it wasn't until finally he got to Peter that Peter started to question and say, well, wait a minute, what are you, you're washing my feet? And Jesus said, well, hey, I'm trying to teach you something here, and you don't really realize what's going on, but you're going to realize in a second what I'm trying to teach you. And see, what he was trying to teach them was what? That if he, the Lord, the teacher, the God of this universe, would wash their feet, he's reinforcing what he's already said, and that was the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's reinforcing the whole idea that even God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ to serve others. And what must have been 
hugely disappointed by that time is that they had not yet, up to this point, caught on. Why did he even have to tell them what he was doing? Why did he have to say to them, I've come to serve? Why didn't they by now already catch the fact that, you know what? Hey, there's no one at the door. Hey, I'll go ahead and do that. Why weren't they arguing and fighting over, no, you, you washed their feet last time. I want to wash the feet this time. Now, I'm not a big foot kind of guy. I've been in enough locker rooms in my lifetime to realize that feet, I'm not a foot guy. I'm just here to tell you that right now. And I'm sure that there's some nasty looking feet that were present at that particular meal that day. But Jesus saw past that and saw what? He saw a need. He saw a need and he was looking for that need. He was sensitive to that need and then he responded to the need. What's sad about all of this is is that he had to go through and teach them another lesson yet on the whole idea of serving other people. And I'm, as I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm beginning to get a, a glimpse of what he's trying to tell us. And he's trying to tell us that as God's people, we're not here to be served. And this is going to be critical as it lays a, a, a foundation for what we're going to talk about. We're not here to be served. We're not here to get our way. We're not here to be first. We are here to be last. We are here to serve others. We are here to perceive a need before the person that even has the need knows they have the need and step forward and meet that need. And what Jesus was trying to teach us was, hey, haven't you learned anything yet? And I got to believe that he's telling us the same thing today. Haven't you people learned anything yet about what your purpose is here on this earth? You are to serve and meet the needs of others. And yet he takes it even a step further if you go through and you look at uh, John chapter uh, 13, look at verses 34 and 35 for a second. Now, you know, think about this for a second. I'm sure that every one of them were in that room. <clears throat> you know, John, out of love for Jesus, would immediately wash Jesus' feet. Peter, out of embarrassment that, you know, he didn't catch on to all this, you know, typical Peter, hey, uh, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then give me a bath too. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not prideful, boastful, arrogant person. You know, he didn't realize that he was yet at that point. And, he, and I'm sure he would have washed Jesus' feet too just because, you know, he, he wanted to be the leader and he wanted to be always the one that was catching on first. He liked to give the answers first and he liked to do things first. So Peter's motivation would have been, hey, well, I want people to know that I'm a little sharper than the rest of the guys. But you know what? See, I, I wouldn't even have a problem washing Jesus' feet because look at, after all, everything that he's done for us. Look at what he's done for me. I, I want to serve him. I, I want to I, I do whatever he wants to, me to do. And if he wants me to wash his feet, I'll wash his feet. But the problem that I have, I'm not so sure. I want to wash your feet. <laughs> no, no, don't be looking around now. <laughs> Front row. <laughs> Sandals on. I know I don't want to wash your feet. But you see, that, isn't that the problem, though? I, it was like, I, I'll wash the Lord's feet, but I'm not so sure I want to wash your feet. You see what the problem is? But see, when Jesus takes it a step further, look at uh, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, this love that you have for one another, that you'd even be willing to wash another person's feet, that's how much you love that person. And by this, this love that you have for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have such love for one another. Isn't that true? 
Don't you think that's what Aristides saw when he went back to Hadrian and said, man, they love each other. I walked into a room and they were washing each other's dirty, crummy, dirty, nasty, gnarly, ugly, before death's next day's feet. I mean, man, I don't know. It was mind-boggling to him. It was mind-boggling to him. He couldn't believe what Christians were doing for one another and the love that they had for one another. He said, behold, how they love one another. They're weird. They're strange. I don't know what's going on here, but I know this. They love one another. And the stamp of authenticity for a true or genuine believer is his love for other believers. And so this was blowing him away. And it should be doing the same thing to the world that we live in still to this day. They should be able to walk in and say, man, there's a different spirit here. There's a love here. There's not condemnation. There's not judgmentalism. There's not criticism. There's not backbiting. There's not infighting. There's not all the stuff that's going on out in the world and the business and everywhere else. I go into this Christian church, and man, these people love each other. It's almost to the point where, oh, it's nauseating. Because I've never been around anything like that. And, you know, is, is it even real? I've got to check it out. I want to know. And so as we look at all this, we begin to realize that, you know what, there's got to be a love for the brother that, that is not even something that we think about. You remember what Jesus was saying? Hey, you know what, when you saw me, when, when, when I was naked, and when I was hungry, and, and when I was in need of, of food and shelter and clothing, and when I was in prison, you know, you, you did that. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And do you remember what the answer was? When? When did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison? When? I don't remember. He said, as you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. You didn't even know that what you were doing was a sacrifice in love to me that was a sweet aroma before the throne of God. When? They were so oblivious to it. It became so much a part of their lifestyle that serving other people wasn't a matter of, I'm keeping track. I did this for you. I washed the feet last time. I don't, when did you, it's been six months since you washed feet. Get up here. That's the way we are. We keep track of stuff. I did it last time. You do it this time. And God says, hey, you know what? The, the believer that understands what service is all about doesn't even know when he's serving or she's serving. It just becomes part of your lifestyle. And so as we look at all this, we need to recognize that what God wants in our life and in our midst as a church, and Jesus said it best in John 17, look with me a minute, to see this prayer that he prayed for us, for you and for me, before he departed from this earth. He says in John 17, verses 21 through 23, he says, you know what? I want these people to be united in purpose and in mind says, I don't ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. He said, Father, I'm not just praying for this group of men right now, but I'm praying for every person throughout human history from this day forward who will come to know me because of the words that they have preached and that were preached and that were preached and that were preached and that were preached until finally here we are collectively as a group who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and have, been re have responded to it. He's saying, I want to pray for them. He's praying for us. He's saying, I, I want them that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou dost send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou hast loved me. 
He's saying, hey, I want the world to know that they are united in love and in purpose because it's a reflection of the unity that Jesus Christ had with the Father. And the word unity means this, that they would be perfected into a team. I have had the pleasure and the opportunity to speak to many teams. And one of the things that I have used throughout times when I've had a chance to spend is the acronym for team, which is T-E-A-M. And T-E-A-M, to me, always stood for this. Together, everyone accomplishes more. Together, everyone accomplishes more. Team. That's what a team is all about. See, God's people, we're to be a team. We're many members, but we're to be a team. We're to be united in purpose. And if we're united in purpose and we love one another and the world will know that we are Christians by our love for each other, one of the things that I am convinced of is this, that together everyone accomplishes more. The reason that the church doesn't make much of an impact in its culture is because we're not together. We're fragmented and we're separated. We're not together. And that's the unity that God desires for us. And we need to recognize and we need to understand it. You know, what's amazing to me is that I, I have struggled sometimes and wondered, and you almost scratch your heads and think, you wonder sometimes how people even stay in ministry in different places where it is so fragmented and there's so much disunity and disharmony and there's so much aggravation and critical spirit and backbiting and infighting that you wonder sometimes why people even put up with it. And as we go through all this, you have to ask, what's happened to our unity? What's happened since the day that Hadrian, you know, uh, that, that, that uh, Hadrian sent out Aristides? What's happening since those days? Those days of behold how they love one another. You know, what's amazing to me is that, you know, denominations now number into the hundreds. Even evangelical groups are now divided into 30, 30 various groups. Every one of them confessing common faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you've got you to think if you're out in the world today and uh, you're not a believer, you've got to scratch your head and wonder who's who and who's what and what's going on and what the truth's all about. And if you don't think that's true, you go down the street and you ask somebody if they're a Christian. Nine times out of ten, you know what they're going to say? I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Catholic. Uh, I'm a Metho-Bapto-Catholic Presbyterian. You know, I, I, but they identify themselves with a group. They don't say that, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I am, you know, what church they go to, what group they belong to. It's no longer just, well, yes, I'm a Christian. And, and it's, it's really funny sometimes because all the stuff that can divide us, I, I love the story that was told about uh, um, these two groups that were d d discussing and debating predestination and free will. I love it. You know, the church, we can get divided over so many different things. These, these groups who are discussing predestination and free will. You know, and, uh, and one of the guys who really, you know, and as you can imagine, as the debate got more and more heated, they broke into two different groups. This group broke off. They were the group for predestination. The other group was both of They were for free will. You know, and it was just this huge debate. Well, one poor guy, he doesn't really know what he believes. So he goes over to the group that were predestinationalists, and he goes to join the group, and they said, well, what brings you over here? And what does he say? Well, I don't know. I just came over here on my free will. <laughs> so what do they do? Well, they, they kick him out and they send him over to the other group. 
So the other groups over there, the people that are all for free will, this guy comes over and says, hey, why'd you come and join our group? He says, well, because that group sent me over. He goes, well, then you can't belong here because it's a group of free will people. Now, where does this guy fit in? He doesn't know what's going on yet, but they break into two groups. And, you know, and sometimes you get to the point where it's so ridiculous that you begin to wonder, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? But that's what we need to look at, and that's what we need to understand. And, uh, you know, uh, I like what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. He says, you know, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also what? For the interests of others. That's pretty simple stuff. Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Selfishness and conceit, pride. I'll guarantee you they'll break down unity and fellowship every time. You want to see a church that's fragmented and falling apart or a board that's fragmented and falling apart? I'll guarantee you that somebody's violating, within that myth, someone is violating these very basic principles. You want to see, you know, it's almost like talking to kindergartners. You know what I mean? It's like saying, okay, listen, stop looking for credit. Stop looking for what you can get out of it. Think about the other person instead of yourself. Don't be selfish. Isn't that what it sounds like? That's good stuff, though. Some of the best stuff I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten. I'll share it with you when we close today, but that's true. I mean, some of the deepest theological training I ever had were, were learned in a public kindergarten. And I'll share that with you if you just stick with me for a little bit. Anyway, with all that as a backdrop, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to take a look in this particular passage in 1 Peter 3, starting, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through verse 3 of the next chapter, we're going to take a look and see that what Peter wants to offer us today is that there is some hope beyond division. There's some hope here beyond division. And he lays out four truths or four principles as we go through this that we need to recognize and understand. And this is what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the, the word of the Lord stands and abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, as you may recall, if we've gone through this series, Peter wrote to encourage God's people who were scattered. Uh, many of them were far from their homes. Many of them are in danger of losing all their earthly possessions and their earthly inheritance. Uh, they were distressed and they were living in extreme situations. They were tested by various trials. Uh, some were running for their lives. With the madman Nero on the throne in Rome, it was a dangerous time to be a Christian. And you know, when you stop and think about it, some of them, no doubt, were tempted to uh, maybe to conform, to compromise. Some, no doubt, would ultimately be tempted to turn on one another. And as we go through all this, there would be some who were ultimately even tempted just to give up altogether. You know, now, you would think that with such a common enemy on the throne of Rome at that particular time, 
that God's people would be united in purpose and spirit and recognize that, hey, we're not the enemy. He's the enemy, and he's out there. Now, you would think that would be the case. Gee, do you think that maybe that's the case today? Can I just share with you something that I believe is true of the culture that we live in? Unless there's some miraculous intervention of God and there's some incredible revival that takes place in our country, it will become more and more difficult for God's people to take a stand for the things of God. And maybe the madman Nero isn't as obvious to our culture, but there's a definite anti-God sentiment that's moving about quite fiercely in our midst. If we do not understand today what it means to be united in purpose and spirit and love for one another, when the real persecution starts, we will be fragmented and we will be divided because the easiest way to destroy an enemy is to conquer by dividing from within. This is a very timely message for every one of us. As timely as it was to the people that Peter originally wrote to, it's equally as timeless to us today. And we need to recognize that, and we need to understand it. And we need to realize why we should be united in purpose and spirit, and why we should love one another. Because folks, never forget that the enemy is not in here, but the enemy is out there. And so what I want to share with you are four truths as we go through all of this. The foundation for these truths is found in verse 22. It says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And there's two words that are used. The first word, sincere love of the brethren, is a word that we get the English word uh, Philadelphia or city of brotherly love. It's a brotherly love for one another. Now, many of us have a brotherly love for each other. There's an attraction, there's a, an affection that goes, and, and uh, that's like the first level. But he goes on to say this, not only should we just like each other, but we should fervently love each other. Now, the word love that's used in the second instance is the word agape love, meaning that not only should we like each other and get along with each other, but we also must have a divine love for one another that is supernatural in nature. And he'll begin to explain as we go through this why this will be so important to us. So we need to like each other first, and then we need a divine love for each other, which is supernatural, and he'll explain why that will be so important. So as we go down through all of this, I'm thinking to myself, you know what we really need? You know, there, there are support groups in every church for everything that you can imagine. Every church, for the most part, has a support group of some sort for something. What we need is a support group, and this will just be one big one, this will be our support group for love and encouragement. You follow? I mean, we've got, you know, alcoholic support groups and, and drug addiction support groups and divorce recovery groups. And, you know, we've got, we've got support groups all over the place. And in fact, you know, we've got, you know, small group Bible studies or shepherd groups or whatever. And that accountability is there and that support is there. But what we really need in these groups is love and encouragement and support for one another. Not being critical and bitter and angry and resentful, but people that could come together and feel like when they left, hey, you know what? I was lifted up. I was encouraged. I was supported. And now I can go out and fight the real enemy that i got to deal with every day at my job or every day in my community or every day on the athletic field or every day in my school. I can go out and I can... I, man, you know what? I am, I am, I'm ready. I'm excited. 
And so Peter's going to give us a pep talk. You know, it's kind of like a pre-game pep talk. Hey, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to understand. This is what we need to recognize. You know what? What is it that draws Christians together? What is it that should build us up and encourage each other? Here's the first thing. That's this. We've experienced the same birth. We've experienced the same birth. What is it that gives us hope beyond division? Simply this. We have experienced the same birth. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart for what? For you have been born again. You have been born again. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, How is it that a guy can get to heaven? And Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 or 18, he said this, You know what? You must be born again. You must be born again by God. You must be born again spiritually. If you're ever going to get to heaven, you must have a spiritual rebirth. Now, as I'm going through all this, I'm starting to realize, you know what? In the human family, you know, there are a variety of birth experiences. Now, we may be of a certain race or races. We, we may be, have ethnic or religious backgrounds. We may come from wealth or poverty or from the so-called educated or professional to, to the illiterate and the, uh, and the working class. And, and just as the disciples came from all different backgrounds, you know, Paul w- had gone to rabbinical schools and Peter was a fisherman and, and uh, Matthew was a tax collector and they all came from different backgrounds and they were all called and they were all chosen. And one of the things that Peter likes to use on a regular basis is that we were chosen by God. We were called by God. It wasn't hard for Peter to understand the calling of God. Great theological debates occur over how God calls and chooses people. But it wasn't really hard for Peter. Peter was fishing. Jesus came to him and said, Hey, you, Simon, now you're Peter. Hey, come with me. He called him. What? You'll become fishers of men. Hey, you know what? It doesn't take a lot of theological debate to understand that Jesus called him. He got up and he went. Duh. This isn't that hard. And so God chooses us. And so when he calls you, chooses you, you respond either by saying, I'm staying and I'm not fishing, or I'm saying I am fishing, or I'm not fishing anymore and I'll go with you. God calls, people respond to his calling. Now also we need to recognize and understand that we all experience the same birth. And that is this. Every one of us, to enter into God's family, every one of us have to get there the same way. And the way we get there is this. Every one of us are like orphans running around wild on the streets. We have no spiritual life. We have no spiritual death. We are dead in our sins, the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of righteous. We're all dead and wandering the streets. But God, being rich in mercy, steps in and says, Hey, you, I'm calling you. I'm choosing you. You are dead like all the rest of the orphans running around in the street. And, you know, and, and not to be irreverent, but God is like Big Daddy Warbucks. He sees these orphans in the street and he says, I want to give you a home. And I want to adopt you and give you all the privileges that come with adoption as if you were my own child. I'm going to bring you into my home and now you're going to be set apart, holy, separated from everybody else that's running around the streets and you've responded to the call. Now you're going to come over here and you're going to be a child of mine. You're going to be adopted by God. We cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8:15, and we become a child of God. Listen to me. There isn't a person in the family of God that doesn't get there the same way. We are all adopted because God, being rich in mercy, has saved us. Do you understand that? It's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. Whether you are 6 or 60, whether you are educated or illiterate, whether you have a Ph.D. or a GED, whether you have any money in the bank or none at all, 
The only way you get into the family of God is that God chooses you, you respond by believing in Jesus Christ, and you become adopted into His family. Now listen to me. There is, there is nothing that will destroy unity quicker than forgetting that truth. You understand what I'm saying? There is no one in the family of God who deserves to be there, who has earned their way there, who is better than anybody else in the family of God because we're all there because God chooses us off the streets and He adopts us. So I don't care what your background is, what your education is, what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you have, what your family heritage is, what your genealogy is, whether you're born with a silver spoon or a plastic spoon from Jack in the Box. It doesn't matter. You understand? There is nothing that will destroy unity quicker than somehow believing that you are better than the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. Do you understand that? Say amen. amen. Think about how it neutralizes the playing field. Isn't that great stuff? Oh, I can't be arrogant. I can't be conceited. I can't be prideful. I can't be boastful. I can't think I'm better than you. Or like this, I guess. I can't think I'm better than you. It's nasty being in the front row sometimes, isn't it? And, and why is that? Because I'm not. Don't go amen too loud, huh? See, you know, what, what's... Have I made myself clear? Isn't it true how often there's division and disharmony because somebody is so uppity that they think they're better than the next guy or gal? I've been on this board before there was a board. <laughs> yeah, and all I can say is that's why they call them boards. <laughs> See, sometimes we get like that. I've been a Christian longer than you've been on the face of the earth. Yeah, and? What is the point? Because if I'm reading my Bible right, you became a Christian the same way I became a Christian. You believed in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Him and the grace of God that He, being rich in mercy, has called you out of the streets of being an orphan and have given you a home. So I'm trying to understand again why you think you're better than me. I don't get it. Nothing will divide the church quicker than thinking we're better than somebody else. Folks, God has called us out of our poverty and has put us into his home so that we can serve him and that we can have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know that they came into the family the same way. Man, once we grasp that, it gets easier from there. Now, the second truth is this. We take our instruction from the same source. That you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. You follow that? We take our instruction from the same source. And you know what that is? It's the Word of God. In simple terms, we all are to play by the same rules. Every one of us are to play by the same rules. Here they are, read them and understand them because we're all accountable to them equally. We need to recognize and understand that, you know, right here in this book is that every rule that we need. 
You know, here's the problem with man's efforts for unity. This is what he says. You know what, look, all men are like grass. Their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You hear what he's saying? He's saying this. Man has all these efforts to unite mankind. Oh, we got the United Nations. What a big black hole to dump a whole bunch of money in. We're all going to sit around with interpreters and try to get along with each other. What a fiasco that is. And I'll tell you why. Because from the Tower of Babel to, to, to Babylon, the great in Revelation 17, man has been trying to unite one another with some common purpose and some common game plan or goal. You know, we all sit around and it can work out great for a while. Let's all hold hands and sing, We Are the World. Now, let me ask you something. Has the world been transformed from the day that they sat down or stood up in that studio and recorded the song, We Are the World? Isn't the world a much better place now because we've got that CD out there, We Are the World? We are the world. In fact, most of the time, the CD that they're playing in is stolen by somebody else who says, You are, but I'm not part of that one. You know what I'm saying? we got this idea that we can unite mankind. Well, let me tell you something. The only thing that unites mankind is the Word of God. It's the only thing that transforms the heart and the souls of people. It's the only way that man gets a renewed mind and understands the things of God. The Word of God is the only thing that doesn't fade away like the flowers and the glory of man. Think of the glory of man. Yeah, you know what the glory of man is? The glory of man are tourist stops for some travel bureau. Go to the ruins. There's a key word for the glory of man. Go see the ruins at wherever. They're ruined. Think about it. I want to have people come and see the ruins at my house. That'd be great. Just pay. I don't care. Whatever you want to pay. Here, this is broke over here. Look at that. It was glorious at one point. Now it's ruined. What's the point here? The point is, <laughs> sometimes, the point is we all take our instruction from the same source. You want to destroy unity and harmony? You know the quickest way to do it? Have a double standard. Right? How many homes have a double standard? The standard is this. We have one standard for the boys. We have one standard for the girls. That goes over pretty big, doesn't it? Produces harmony and we are the world's kumbaya. Let's all stand around in a circle and, and uh, we're grateful for that. Think about it. But that destroys a home. Oh, oh, unity. Uh, 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 oh, here, double standard in business. Here's the son or the daughter of the owner over here playing by one set of rules. Everybody else is over here playing by the other set of rules. Oh, that makes for some real harmonious working relationships. Or take an athletic team where you've got the superstar over here, no rules apply. And everybody else over here, every rule applies. And they all sit there and they all go, man, what's this all about? Talk about producing. Does that produce teamwork and harmony? And see, and here's what happens in the church. Oh, we're over here. We're on boards. We're, uh, you know, we're the, the clergy. You know, and, and you're just the lay people. And we separate ourselves as if there's a double standard. And I don't mean to slam boards and stuff, but, but what I'm trying to slam is this. The idea that because you're on a board, you're better than people who aren't. You follow what I'm saying? There, there's a guy on the board. He's whining already. 
Because let's face it, sometimes people on boards don't even meet the biblical, biblical qualifications to be on a board. But because they're elected and people like them, then they're on it, but it doesn't matter whether they're qualified or not. So let's not be silly about all this. We need to recognize and understand something, and that is this. I don't care if you're on a board, or I don't care if you're part of the congregation that's not on the board. The point is this. We are all subject to the same rules across the board and the other boards and no boards, but across everything. You follow what I'm saying? We all take our instruction from the same source. You know, and that's really important too because the problem that we have as we look at all this is, hey, you know what, some of us think we're above the rules. Now, if you want harmony in the, in the body of Christ, then we all play by the same rules. We're all subject to the same Bible. We're all subject to the same words. We're all subject to the same principles and the same commandments. And if you can't fall in line to that, then get out of the way because you're not qualified to lead the people of God if you're in that kind of position. That's all. But the point is, we're all subject to the same rules. Number three, the third thing that draws us together is this. We all have the same struggles. You would think that, you know what, would be kind of, would figure it out by now, but you know, there are a lot of things that we all struggle with, and so as a result, the thing that should draw us all together is that we're all in the same boat and we all struggle with the same things. And that is that, you know what, rid yourselves of all these things, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. We need to recognize and understand something that, you know, every one of us are subject to it. And as we receive instruction from the Word of God, I love this story that I heard not too long ago about it. This preacher was preaching, and he had a deacon that just didn't hear anything that was being said. And he met with them and said, hey, listen, you know what, here's some things. And he tried to encourage people to get involved and try to lead in a way by serving and being an example and stepping out in front. And that's the way God's people lead, by the way. They don't shove anybody. They're out in front saying, follow me. And so he was trying to get this deacon to understand that. And every time that, that he tried to get him to understand, this guy, just nothing was sinking in. Finally, he even started directing, directing his, his uh, sermons to this guy. And he would point at him and look at him and slam the pulpit and try to get it across to him. Well, the deacon would come up to him later and say, Man, you sure preached it to him today, brother. And the guy's like, this isn't, this isn't sinking in. And he went to him another time and did it again. The guy came up and said, Man, you sure preached it to him today, brother. Finally, there's one day where it's raining so hard, no one's there but this one deacon and the pastor. So now the pastor's thinking, I got this guy, and he just aimed the whole thing, looked at him the whole time, and he just preached the word, and there it was, and the guy came up to him and he said this, he said, man, you sure would have preached it to him today, brother, if only they had been here. He go, what? Now sometimes some of us say the same thing. It's like, how many times have you ever said this? Oh, man, I wish so-and-so would have been there this morning. Oh, man. I got to get the tape. I wish, I wish they would have been there this morning. Oh, man. Or no, it's this. Oh, yes, I'm so glad they're there today. You know, and it's like, and then he said, you go, well, 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 let me ask something. How about you? Are you glad that you're here? I mean, what about you? Why is it always so much more easy to see how applicable it is to someone else? You know, and God's saying, hey, you know what? You want some, you want some unity in the church. Then you know what? You need to see that, hey, I need to apply what I learned and if they apply it too, then that's great. But I can apply what I've learned today and I'll allow God to change me first. And as he changes me, it'll be interesting to see whether I even recognize how much more someone else needs to change. Isn't that interesting? I like that. But here's the truth to draw us together. The third thing is we have the same struggles. And he's saying this, hey, lay aside 
or get rid of yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So we'll go through it real quick. What's malice? Evil intent. The intent to harm another person. What will destroy uh, harmony? Wanting to hurt somebody else. All guile or deceit. Remember Jesus said of Nathaniel, Hey, see him? In him there is no guile. There's no deceit. What you see is what you get. It's just the way it is. They're not playing a game. They're transparent. They're real. They're authentic. They're genuine. What you see is what you get. Wasn't that wonderful? Wouldn't that be great if the people outside, the people of God, would look at your life and say, you know what? What you see is what you get. And one of the things I've got to say about him or her is they're not hypocritical. They're not wearing a mask. They're not one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. Hey, you want to have some harmony with, uh, among the people of God? Let me just tell you something. Be who you are, as long as it's right before God, in this comfortable setting, and when you leave and you go to your office tomorrow, or when you go out to the construction site, or when you go down to the baseball field, or when you go to the classroom, when you go to your home or your community, or whatever it is, be who you are and stop being two-faced and hypocritical. Nothing will destroy harmony quicker than having two-faced people among the group. Laid aside. Envy. You know what envy is? It's this. I'm so happy for you. What an idiot. I cannot believe that that guy got promoted. I mean, he's a moron. I can't believe that, oh, nice house, I like your house. How did that person get a nicer house than us? I can't even believe it. You know, oh, nice car. Did you get a new car? I mean, a new car. They're probably violating some biblical principle somewhere along the line that they went out and got a new car. You know, see, that's that envy part. It's kind of like saying one thing externally. Well, I'm so happy for you, brother. Oh, God bless you. I'm so glad that God, that God has blessed you. God bless you. God bless that person. What a moron. See, you know, lay that aside because that kind of thinking will destroy unity quickly. And the last thing is the worst thing of all, and that's slander. Slander is this. That's, I'm thinking about what a moron you are, but now I'm going to go tell people that you're a moron. You know what I mean? So I take it to the next step. You know, malicious intent to harm another person's reputation, and they're never around to defend themselves. So I'm just going to go tear them apart. You know what? Can I just tell you people something? Lay those things aside. Why? Because we focus on this, the final thing that will draw us together, we focus on the same objective. And you know what that objective is? To grow up in Christ. My goal is to grow up and become a mature man of God. I'm born in the family of God, whether I'm 6 or 60, as a child of God. But you know what? My goal is to grow up and become a man of God. Some of us are still in our infancy, and the reason that we're in our infancy is because we have not longed for the pure milk of the Word. See, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Folks, a couple, uh, uh, about a month ago, I got a call from a guy who wanted to know, and as it turned out, it ended up working out this way, but he wanted to know if I would take over and, and be the chaplain for the angels. And, um, and so he was here last week from Chicago, and we met, and we went through some things. But one of the things that was really impressed, impressive to me about this organization of Baseball Chapel was that the guy who heads it up, he said this. He goes, I want to make sure that when you walk into a locker room or into a dressing room, and that you ever address anyone, that you got your Bible in your hand, and that you open it up so that they know that this is our authority right here. 
thank God for this guy. Because I've had people who are in leaders of churches say to me, when you go into Ram's locker room, you don't take your Bible, do you? And, you know, gee, knowing the quick-witted guy that I am, <laughs> and what else would I go in there prepared to share? You follow what I'm saying? I'm not that bright. I'm not that sharp. I don't have some great philosophy of life. The most wonderful thing is, the only thing that I know to share with anybody is what God has to say. So when I walk in and I said, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean I don't go in with my Bible? Well, they're not going to want to see a Bible. Who cares if they want to see? That's what they're going to get. Now think about this for a moment. These are the same people that are heading up churches that all of a sudden this movement's going on to, hey, you know what? We won't use the Bible. We're going to fool them. We're going to trick them. Hey, let me tell you something. If you come here and you want to come here regularly and you don't have a Bible yet, go out and get one. Now, I use overheads and I put them on there to be, you know, to be nice to people that maybe are coming into an environment where they don't have a Bible and they're not sure what's going on. But let me tell you something. If you don't have a Bible, go out and get one because we're always going to use it. Because when you open it up, that's the only authority that we have. And the reason that some of us are so uh, maybe lacking unity and disharmony is because we haven't grown up yet. And the reason we haven't grown up yet is because we're not spending any time reading the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And when I walked out of the Angel's Chapel last Saturday, man, their eyeballs were like deer in headlights, and they don't know what hit them. <laughs> Which is awesome. And what was cool about it, hey, and what's great about it is that it wasn't me but the Spirit of God can really hit people where they need it the most because God knows their heart. How many times you walk out of here going, did my wife or my husband tell you what's going on because what you just said just went, I just got me. I, I don't have a clue what's going on. I don't even know sometimes what's going on in my own house. You know, ask my wife. It's like, hey, but when you open this up and you share this, I'll tell you what. The Word of God changes lives. This is the only thing that we have to stand upon. The solid foundation is the Word of God. So when we're going to share something with somebody, this is where it comes from, not our thoughts, not our philosophies. It's in here, and if it's in there, then it applies to every one of us, and we'll all abide by the same rules. Why? Because we're interested in unity, not disharmony. And I love it as we go through this. Oh, let me close on this. I mentioned to you that some of the most fa fantastic things I ever learned. Oh, we're, uh, man, I hate when I run out of time. The deepest things I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten. Listen to this. This guy wrote this article. All I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten. He said this. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. And I like this one. And when you go outside... It's best to hold hands and stick together. That's good stuff. Think about it, Christian friend. When we go outside and remember the enemy is out there, can we walk out together holding hands and being united in purpose and in spirit? It doesn't get any better than that. Because when we do that, I'll guarantee you those immortal words that have gone out through human history will continue for centuries to come. And that is this. We don't understand them, 
But we know this. They sure love each other. Behold how they love each other. Wow, that's good stuff, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. We just thank you for your word. We just thank you that uh, you've called us and you prayed for us so long ago that we would be united in purpose and spirit. You tell us that it's by our love for each other that the world around us will know that we are Christians. God, help us to become people who lay aside everything that causes disunity. And we become people that are kind and tender-hearted to each other, that we forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven us. God, help us to leave here today with a passion on our heart to be people who are uplifting and encouraging, to catch ourselves before we say anything critical, critically spirited or negative and realize that, you know what, we're in a battle, but the enemy is out there. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.